Welcome to the River Bluff Church Sermon Podcast. We hope you enjoy the sermon from lead pastor Joe Still. And for more information about us, please visit riverbluff.org. Yeah, I feel taller on the top step now. Come on back here, Scott. I'm going to stand on the top step when you're up here. I hope you guys are well today. Glad to, glad to see you as well. As Scott has said, we're going to be in Ephesians. Uh, I know some of you are saying, I didn't know you could study Ephesians for a year. Well, you can. You know, do some other things along the way too. Hey, um, if you've been hanging out at the river for a while, or even if this is just your first Sunday with us, uh, I, I would invite you to con- consider this. Today at 4 o'clock, we're going to do our Exploring Church Membership uh, Seminar. And in it, we'll tell you why we do what we do, the way we do, where we think God is calling us in the days ahead, um, what, why what seems important to us seems important around here. And so I would encourage you. Uh, you'll have time to ask questions and we'll tell you our core beliefs, our core values, how we operate out of those. And um, so I encourage you to come today at four o'clock. Now that means if you are in my Sunday afternoon group that's studying the church and the racial divide, you won't be meet, we won't be meeting today. Okay, we're, we're taking a break this week um, to, to do the Exploring Church membership. So um, you, you have a week off. We'll pick back up uh, next Sunday afternoon at at four. Now, one of the one of the the descriptions that I think um, is seldom used of Christians. Uh, I, I think a lot of times, you know, if, if somebody was going to do kind of a, a one word kind of synonym of, of Christians, it might be something like encourager. Uh, hopefully it would be, uh, have a positive twist. It'd be something like, you, you know, maybe um, uh, faithful, something like that. Very seldom do I hear Christians thinking of themselves as a veteran of war. As veterans of war. Um, And yet, in the section of scripture that we look at, if you want to go ahead and turn there and get your worksheet out, uh, we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 6, starting in verse 10. There's going to be a bunch of scripture today. All but the last two verses are referenced on the bottom and back of your worksheet. So don't freak out if they move quickly. You can't access them. Except for the last two. You'll have to get those on your own. Um, but they'll stay up there kind of at the end. But we're going to do a lot of scripture. We're going to move kind of quick today um, in order to get through this. When, when I uh, first became a Christian, a book that somebody gave me um, was one by Dr. D.G. Barnhouse. And it was entitled The Invisible War. Uh, the people that were discipling me, several of them get, would give me different books. And I would start reading them. But this book really influenced my life in an incredible way. And the thesis of the book really has uh, much in common with what we're, what we're addressing today. And here's what it did early in my faith journey. It alerted me to this uh, biblical concept, this biblical reality of a cosmic battle that was going on all around me. That has been going on forever for the hearts and minds of people. And it's a fierce battle. But it's invisible to the human eye. It's only able to be seen when God opens our, the, 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 our minds to see it. Now, um, if you have personally, if you're here today and you've personally trusted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, if you've made that commitment, you probably remember the first time you experienced that battle. And so I'm going to ask you to think back to, to where you were. The, the when, the, the moment that you remember surrendering and saying, Jesus, I'm in. I, I, I can't do it anymore. I, I've tried my own sinful way and I'm, I'm trusting you. 
Because for most people, there was some kind of emotion attached. I remember sitting on a pew, grabbing the back of the pew in front of me, pretty sure I was going to crush the oak in my hands. Because it was, it was just that intense in my soul. I mean, it was it, it just this, this intent, uh, attention. And for some, you know, it was uh, just overwhelming joy. For others, it was a, a sense of peace like you'd never had before. Some people walk away from that moment knowing with clarity their purpose for life. Uh, others walk out of that moment being overwhelmed by the reality of knowing that God is my father now because I've trusted Jesus and he, he's my friend. And those, those are true. For anyone who's trusted Christ, God became your father then and, and, and your friend. But here's the deal. Bad news. You inherited God's enemy as your enemy. Satan. He, the devil became your enemy on that day. Now, if you've been walking with Christ for any length of time, you've done business with him. You have felt him. You've known him. You know that you have kind of stepped onto a battlefield. And you, because you've experienced this kind of strange dynamic of inner peace while at the same time having conflict. Why? Well, the Bible tells us that before you trusted Jesus, uh, your nature was completely dominated. It may be unbeknownst to you, but it was completely dominated by Satan. He didn't need to, to really mess with you. But when you gave your life to Christ, the Bible says God put in you a new nature. A new person, a new creation was born in that moment. Now, the, the old nature was crucified, but you still have those patterns. The Bible calls it flesh patterns. And your flesh patterns battle that new nature. And that goes on throughout your Christian life. But as you grow in Christ, the flesh dies away. And that new man, new woman grows up. Well, that tension is what the Bible calls spiritual warfare. Spiritual warfare. And you, you can't make it through the New Testament or just a reading of the New Testament without picking up on this concept. And so Paul is writing to his brothers and sisters in, at this church in Ephesus about this great battle. He wants them to understand it. Now, one of the interesting things is Paul wrote this while in prison. We've talked about this for the past year. He wrote it while in prison, oftentimes chained to a Roman soldier. A Roman guard, a Roman, Roman soldier. And so Paul, when, when he gives the descriptions that we're going to look at today, Paul was looking at the guy he was chained to. Paul was probably looking because oftentimes when he was in prison, he was in prison where the garrison uh, of soldiers hung out and were going through training. So he could probably look out his window and watch them training with their swords and with their shields and you know, putting on their, their, their armament and all of those kinds of things. And so Paul speaks out of that under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to warn us, to tell us about the battle that we're in. And so he writes, Paul, and it's not just here in Ephesians, Paul writes to Timothy in his personal letter to Timothy, the first one he writes this in 1 Timothy 6.12, fight the good fight of faith. He's saying there's, there's a fight involved in this thing we call faith. Again, the second letter that Paul writes to Timothy, he's just telling him again. He says, share in the suffering as a good soldier of Christ. That metaphor again. Two chapters later, at the end of that letter, Paul writes this in uh, chapter 4, verse 7. I have fought the good fight. Finished the race. Kept the faith. This is, this is a metaphor that Paul uses. It's also used by other New Testament writers. Jude uh, in verse 3 writes this in, in Jude. He says, I want to encourage you to fight hard for the faith that was given to God's, God's holy people. 
So this battlefield imagery is not something that should be surprising to anybody who has read through the New Testament. Now, in our journey through uh, this, this book of Ephesians, uh, for me, I, I like to think in outlines of things. And we, so we've kind of talked about this. The first three chapters of, uh, of the book of Ephesians, for me, is about the wealth of Christ. Everything that we have received in, in Jesus when we're in Christ. And it's just incredible, the first three chapters. And then there's chapters 4, 5, and the first part of 6. And that's the walk of the believer. So there's this wealth that we have in Christ. A lot of deep theology, rich theology in there. And then Paul gives practical application to what our walk should look like. How, our, how we should apply the beautiful truths of the first three chapters. Um, and, and then he, he comes to verse 10. And for me, the, the outline changes and this becomes the warfare. So for me, it's the wealth, the walk, and the warfare of a believer. It just kind of defines and outlines this book. Now in verse 10 of chapter 6, we get introduced to this battlefield experience. And Paul wants us to know a few things. He wants his friends in Ephesus to know a few things in us as well. And so Paul, in verse 10, begins with the word, finally. He starts this, this section of scripture saying, finally. Now, I know sometimes you're, you're thinking, Joe, you say finally and you don't mean it. Um, I'll try to do better today. But uh, here, Paul says, finally. And usually when somebody says that, and oftentimes, and Paul would be no exception here, oftentimes the last words that somebody share, their last words to you are very dear to their heart. A heavy message maybe that's implanted on their heart. And Paul writing this letter to these folks at Ephesus, his friends that he loved, he knew this may be the very last thing he communicates to them. And I think it was important. It was heavy on his heart. And he wants them to understand that the Christian life is not a playground, it's a battleground. And so Paul writes in verse 10, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. And he then is going to set out to show his brothers and sisters what it looks like to be strong in the Lord. He's going to tell them some things that they need, need to know. He starts in verse 11, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Now, I don't know where you may stand uh, politically on the use of our troops in foreign lands. I'm not fixing to take a poll. I don't want to know what you think about that. But here's what I do know. If you're a spiritual pacifist, if you're a pacifist in, in this spiritual battle, excuse me, but you're going to get your behind kicked. You're, you just are. You have got to understand th that it's a, a battle. And you're in the army now. You know, you, you, gotta, you gotta know that. It's just the truth. And so the first thing that Paul wants you to know in order to be strong in the Lord is this. You're in a battle. It's, it's, not, it's not fake news. You're in a battle. It's, it's a real battlefield. And Paul, Paul doesn't want to just show you how to fight. He wants to show you how to win your battles. And so in verse 11 he says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of who? The devil. And so what Paul is doing is giving one more thing here that you need to know to be strong in the Lord. You've got to know your enemy. You've got to know your enemy. It's essential to winning any battle is, is knowing your enemy. Now who does Paul tell us is our number one enemy? 
The devil, he just lays it out right there. But he doesn't stop there. He goes on in verse 12 and describes more of our enemy. Look at this, uh, Ephesians 6, 12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, uh, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. In other words, the devil, number one enemy, has allies. Now, I know in 2020... The, the thought out in the world of people thinking about the devil, you know, they would balk at that. Being a, a real, actual being. But in the church, it has disturbed me. Uh, the last poll that I read from Barna, uh, polling the church and the church's understanding of Satan. In 2016, it was the last polling information that came out in November 2016. It was called the Religious Life Report. So, again, another one coming out in 2020. But they, they categorized kind of four, four categories of faith in our country. And one of those categories was uh, non-evangelical, born-again Christians. So these are people who call themselves born-again. And when they got to this statement about, about Satan, 35% strongly agreed that Satan was a living being and not just a symbol. Not not just an idea, not just a, a representation of, of cosmic evil, but an actual being. 35%. Now what does that mean? That means 65% didn't strongly agree with that. That means they had some other thought. Many thinking that, that in the Bible when you see the devil or you see Satan, that it just means he's symbolic of, of evil in our world. Now I just want to say, if you're here today, you consider yourself a born-again Christian, um, and you want to believe that Satan is just kind of a, a, an idea, I want you to know something that I believe very strongly. I believe you're in disagreement with the Lord Jesus. Because I see Jesus speaking literally of Satan. Literally of him being a personal being. Jesus said in Luke chapter 10 that he saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. That he actually with his own eyes saw this historical event happen. I believe personally it's, it, he's referring back to what um, both Ezekiel and Isaiah record. Ezekiel in Ezekiel chapter 28 records this uh, story of the life of, of Satan. And how, how he existed. Uh, how God created him. And God put him in second chair leadership. So he was the second created being. Now not the Father, Son and Holy Spirit. That's God. This is a second chair leader in God's kingdom with Satan. And you can read about it in Ezekiel 28 and what happened there. Um, also in Isaiah 14. Isaiah 14 we see uh, in that chapter five different times Satan saying that he was going to do something. And one of the times he said, I'm going to ascend to be the most high. He basically saying, I'm kicking God off the throne, I'm taking it. And for that insurrection, in, in Isaiah, it tells us that he was cast out. Satan decided uh, second chair leadership wasn't good enough. And so it's recorded in the Old Testament. God's, God's word tells us that he was, he was put down into the pit in the place of the dead. That was a prophecy. And so when Jesus is saying this in, in Luke, I believe what he's saying is, I saw that happen. 
And it was recorded in the Old Testament. Jesus also taught that Satan would have real interactions with human beings. Luke 22 records an interaction that uh, Jesus was warning Peter about. And he, he warned Peter in Luke 22. And I, I just imagine, you, sometimes you have to use your imagination when you imagine these encounters. I imagine Jesus walking up and putting his, his hand on, on, on Peter's shoulder. And looking him dead in the eye and say, Peter... He used the name Simon. Simon? Simon, he calls his name twice. Behold, Satan has demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. Now, if Jesus walked up to me, put his hand on his shoulder and said, Joe, hey Joe, Satan has demanded to have you. And he's going to sift you like, you know what my next question would be? Jesus, what did you say to him? Jesus, you got my full attention. Now, will you please tell me what you told Satan? Well, he told Peter what he told him. And it was simply this. I have prayed for you. That your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. See, Jesus taught that there were going to be personal interactions. Personal attacks. That he's real and personal. That great evangelist, White L. Moody, one of the things he used to say regularly about Satan, he says, I believe in Satan for two reasons. One, because the Bible tells me so. The other is because I've had to do personal business with him. I, I've had to do personal business with him. And the truth is, every God-loving, devoted follower of Jesus has at one time or another done personal business with him. The only way you haven't done personal or aren't doing personal business with him is one of two ways. You're dead. Or... You're so carnal, stuck in sin right now, that he doesn't have to mess with you. It's, it's one of those two things. See, if, you're not, if you don't have any spiritual warfare going on in your life and you're a Christ follower, it, it's not a good sign. In our text, the word that's used for the devil in Ephesians is the, 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 the accusing one. The, the one that makes accusation uh, against you. It's one of the most common names. In Revelation 12.10, it tells us that the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. Now, I don't know whether you've ever, ever thought about it this way. It, it should make you really happy that Satan is your enemy. I know you're saying, well, I don't really want an enemy. You should be happy that Satan's your enemy. And that God's your friend. Instead of the other way around. Because you can't, you, can't, you can't have it both ways. So one of the questions you need to ask. Is Satan my enemy? Do I see him coming at me? Verse 12 goes on to, to reveal a little bit more about spiritual warfare. We get insight about how highly organized this system of, of uh, his dominions are. Look at Ephesians 6.12. For we do not battle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities, against the cosmic powers, uh, over this uh, present darkness, over uh, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now, when I studied this, most every conservative biblical scholar that I read agreed that this is pointing out that there is a ranking like a military order of ranking among demonic beings sort of like generals and you know colonels and lieutenants and just kind of all the way down to buck private or whatever just down like that a highly organized system and that they understand their rank and their role and they have assignments if you read in Revelation chapter 12 verse 3 it tells how a third of God's created angels fell 
Some people wonder where the demons come from. Well, I believe that the scriptures teach that they were angels and they rebelled when Satan rebelled. Um, you read verse 3. It says, Another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon, his tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to earth. If you keep reading a little bit further and go into verses 7 through 9, you'll see that they, they named the red dragon Satan and they tell you that these, these stars were, were actually angels. That were cast down. Now one of the big questions when you need to know who your enemy is. You want to know how strong are they? How, how, much, how many are there? Now we don't know. We really don't actually have a number of. There's this X number of demons. But there's a lot. In John, excuse me, John writing in Revelation chapter 5, he's given a vision of heaven. And in this vision in, in chapter 5, he's, he, he sees God seated on the throne and he sees the elders surrounding and, and, and angels surrounding. And he, sa he writes this, he says, Then I looked and I heard the voices of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands and ten thousands times ten thousand. They encircled the throne. Some of y'all go ahead and get your calculators out and figure that one out. Let me know afterwards, okay? It's a bunch of angels is basically what it says, okay? Lots of them. A third of them, the Bible tells us, fell. And they became kind of the minions of Satan. And their job is to tempt you, to study you first, but then to tempt you and to trap you in sin. Not, not the Hollywood demon stuff. It's not head spinning around backwards. And, you know, it's not that. Okay, it, it really is to, to study you, to tempt you, and try to lure you into, and trap you into sin. Now, the bad news is, and that's bad news, the bad news is, is that's where most Christians spend most of their time with spiritual warfare. Being afraid of the devil and that third. That's where, that's where most Christians go there. Oh, he's out to get me. Instead of stopping to think, okay, only a third fell, and they got kicked out. So apparently they don't have any real power, except deception. They got kicked out. Two-thirds stayed with God. So just, just if, you, if you just work the sheer number of things, if, if that's all you worked with. And so here's what you and I need to understand too. If we're going to be strong in the Lord, we've got to know. This is what Paul is communicating. We must know your commander and his forces. You've got to know the enemy, but you've also got to know your commander and the forces that he has at his disposal. In Ezekiel, no excuse me, in 2 Kings chapter 6. 2 Kings chapter 6, there is a narrative. I, I encourage you to go home and read it. Okay? It's not all going to come up on the screen today. But basically the story is this. Um, the Syrian king wanted to, to destroy the people of Israel. And so he was going to attack Israel. But every time he attacked Israel, God told the prophet Elisha what he was about to do before he did it. And so Elisha, the prophet, would go tell the king of God's people and they would fortify that area. They would send all their troops up there. And the, the Syrian king would get whooped. And that went on and on and on. And finally the Syrian king got so frustrated, he accused his generals, basically, that somebody was being paid off under the table and was, uh, you know, warning the people of Israel. And one of the generals spoke to him and said, no, that's not what's going on. There's this prophet in Israel, and God speaks to him and tells him, he even tells him what you tell your wife in your bedroom, king. That's scary. Um, but he tells, and so he, he says, where is this guy? 
Well, the, the, the general said he's in Dothan. So the king gets all of his forces, goes and surrounds the city of Dothan at night. He's going to take out Elijah, Elisha. And so he's, he, they're, they're, they're surrounding this city. And Elisha has this little servant guy. And the servant wakes up first. And he goes to the window and pulls. Uh, oh my goodness. He freaks out. He runs to the prophet, shakes him, we're going to die, we're going to die, we're going to die. And Elisha gets up and says, okay, let me see. So Elisha gets up and he sees this, this army surrounding and he kind of, I imagine, he kind of smiles. Looks at the, you know, his servants, kind of smiles at him and, and then he prays. Basically, Joe's version of the prayer, God opened his eyes. Let him see, let him see. Let him see reality, God. And so God does. He opens the eyes of his servant. And surrounding, all in the mountains, the Bible says, just surrounding this army are angels with swords drawn, flaming chariots. It's crazy. Just crazy. He sees this now. And he calms down. And I'm not going to tell you how the story is. You're going to have to go read it. But it's just powerful to know that what, what is going on. And Elisha, he prays this prayer in 2 Kings 6, 17. Open their eyes. And this is part of what Paul was wanting us to have our eyes open to is to the reality of a spiritual battle going on around us. Um, and that, that it's just, it's incredible. But you need to know this. And God's word tells us this in 1 John 4. If you're, if you're the children of God, he says, little children, you are from God. And have overcome them. Talking about all those, those forces there. And he says, for he who is in you is greater than he who's in the world. We need to know this. We need to, to see that. And again, that, that story in Second Kings is a great story to, 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 to understand what goes on in the physical realm. Now, you have an enemy. The absolute, yes. That enemy has lots of minions. You know, great, great number. But nowhere near the number that God has and nowhere near the force or the power that God has. Okay? You got to know your commander and his forces. But then go back to verse 11. Ephesians 6.11 says this. Put on the whole armor of God so that you may be able to stand against what? The schemes of the devil. What that means is, is you've got to know his tactics, his battle tactics, his strategies. To be strong in the Lord, you must know the enemy's tactics. Now, the, the, the word there, um, actual Greek word, is the word methodia. And it, it normally is used in the context of the animal kingdom when it talks about a, an animal such as a lion or a cheetah or something that will study its prey. Just crouch and study its prey. Watch it patiently and then at the right moment pounce. Well the Bible says that's, that's what Satan is like in 1 Peter 5 eight, That the devil is prowling like that. He's, he's watching you to pounce. He has tactics in other words. The two primary tactics that I see him using throughout the history of the church. There's primarily two. The first tactic that I see is kind of the frontal assault. The second is more of a back door. The, the first tactic is persecution. Is persecution. Really the day the church was born. Hell unleashed this tactic of persecuting through the Roman army. Persecuting Christians and the emperors of Rome. And they attacked the church. Physically imprisoning, torturing, killing Christians. And guess what happened to the church? Grew exponentially. Grew incredibly. You know, persecution of Christians is going on in our world today at a rate it never has before. 
It's, it's just incredible the persecution that's going on globally in the world against followers of Jesus. The Lord told us it, it, it was going to come. In China, many of you know the story of Christianity there. There have been several cycles where the church in China had to go underground because of the persecution. And every time uh, they, they lifted the restrictions and the church became publicly known again, they had exponentially multiplied. Well, persecution is breaking out in China now. The church is going back underground. And I believe if we live to see it, those lifted, we're going to see the church explode in China. Because that's what happens in persecution. But the second, the second tactic that I've seen Satan use, again, is more backdoor. And it's not persecution. And he's using this mostly, I think, in, Western, in the Western culture. It's pollution. It's not persecution. It's It's pollution. And we've seen this dramatically in the last decade. We've seen Satan putting predators in pulpits. We've seen, I, I believe, God putting, uh, not God, Satan putting pretenders in the pews. He's polluting the church. And I personally believe that's a much more effective tactic to destroying the church from the inside out. He, he does it by putting in some fake things. The first fake thing that I see, this isn't going to come up on the screen, but is the fake gospel. Paul writes to the church at Galatia about that in Galatians chapter 1. And he warns the church at Galatia that even if an angel from heaven comes down preaching a different gospel than we preach to you, they should be accursed. So he's going to come at the church with a fake gospel. He's also going to try to install fake shepherds. 2 Corinthians chapter 11 tells us this. For Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if even his servants also disguise themselves that way. As servants of righteousness. Jesus, Jesus warned us in Matthew 7. Beware of false teachers. So there, there will be these false teachers coming. And ultimately will be deceived by a fake Christ. The Bible calls him the Antichrist. When the world is set up loving these, this counterfeit gospel, loving these counterfeit ministry leaders, the world will be right for this counterfeit Christ. But see, these are the tactics and the schemes of Satan. And here's what I don't want you to be afraid of. You don't have to fear that you don't know the schemes. Paul writes to the church at Corinth in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 verse 11. He says, no advantage would be taken of us by Satan for we are not ignorant of his schemes. God will reveal. The Holy Spirit will take the holy word of God and show you and I. He will, if we'll keep our eyes open, if we'll walk with Christ, he'll show us. Then we get to some fun things. In verse 14, Paul kind of changes his tact a little bit. And he opens the door to what will give you and I the upper hand in the battle. And that's our weapons. And so if you're going to be strong in the Lord, you've got to know the weapons that are at your disposal. You've got to know the weapons available to you. And Paul starts in verse 14 with this. He starts with the belt of truth. The belt of truth. Now you say like, I'd like a better weapon please. Can I have a bazooka of truth, you know? Uh, give me a belt. You know, I want a bazooka. Um, see, in, in, in the ancient days, uh, soldiers had a belt. They, they normally wore a, a kind of a, like a, a robe, a tunic, if you would, that had a, a hole for the head to go through and arms. Sometimes it actually had sleeves, but it was actually a flowing robe. And when they went to, to go to battle, they would gird it up. They would tuck it up into their belt. Because if they didn't, they would step in it when they were fighting and face plant. And it's over for them. So during combat, 
that, they would, they would gird this up. So the belt was useful for that. But the belt was also the place that, that held and staged, if you would, a sheath for, for their sword. And so they, they, would, they would have this belt to be, uh, it would kind of tie everything together that they really, really needed. Well, Paul, looking at, at his soldier, seeing how that belt worked, realized that's truth for the Christian. That the truth for us is what ties everything together. So we need to gird ourselves with the, the belt of truth. The truth of the gospel is what brings everything together so that we are battle ready. So you've got to know the gospel. You've got to tell it to your... We, we, we have to sing the truths of the gospel to ourselves. I love the way Pastor Terry and our, our praise team leads us to do that. There are all kinds of ways to do that. But I want to say the primary way that we, we put the belt of truth on is we need to spend a little bit of time in the word of truth every day. Now I know some of you are morning people. And some of you hate the morning. Some of you are night owls. You know, and some of you are just like middle of the day people. It doesn't matter which sequence or who you are. You, all of us need a little bit of time in a quiet place with a quiet heart in, in front of the Word of God. We just need to be quiet and let the Word of God flow over us. Just a little bit. You don't have to sit down and read a whole book that day. Just let a little bit wash, wash over you. Another thing that I believe that the truth represents here is that you and I need to have, we need to have a truthful attitude. We need to be persons of integrity. That needs to, to gird us up. It's, uh, it's about being authentic. It's, not, it's about not being a hypocritical Christian. You know, having a, a half-hearted commitment to the Lord. The belt of truth. You know, one of the, the great human structures of uh, to defend uh, against warfare that was ever constructed was the Great Wall of China. And they built the Great Wall of China with, with this in mind. They wanted to build it high enough that the enemy couldn't get over it. They wanted to build it thick enough that they couldn't just kind of knock it down. And they wanted to build it long enough that people would, couldn't get around it. And so they did. They, they worked and worked and worked on this m a bunch of resources they poured into this, this defense, defensive wall, if you would. And I don't know if you know this, but the first hundred years after the China, the Great Wall of China was constructed, China got invaded three times. They didn't go over the wall. They didn't go through the wall, knock it down. They didn't go around the wall. You know what they did? They bribed the gatekeepers. They spent all this money, all this manpower into this structure and they didn't pour anything into the hearts of their people. They didn't, they didn't teach them about integrity and this, this need for protection. And so often that's what we do. We, we try to build all these structures and we don't, we don't focus enough on a heart of truth. Integrity, authenticity. That's what holds our lives together. That, that belt of truth. Then in verse 14 it says this. And having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Now in that day breastplates basically went from the neck to the waist. And sometimes it was all metal. A lot of times it was leather with, with metal around it. But its purpose was to protect vital organs. Things like your heart and your liver and your intestines and, and, and your spleen. And so Paul's looking at that piece of armor. And in his day, there was this kind of metaphor that our heart is where our thoughts emanated. 
Our thinking emanated. Your intestines is where, you know, the Bible talks about feeling. We even talk about, you know, you get that feeling in the pit of your stomach when you're nervous. We, we feel kind of from out of our bowels. Uh, Proverbs chapter 23 verse 7 tells us that as a man thinks is his heart, so he is. Jesus, uh, speaking of Jesus in Mark 2, Mark writes that Jesus knew what they were thinking where? In their hearts. So this, it's this idea Paul is saying of this breastplate of protecting our thought life and also our feelings, our emotions, which is, you know, our intestines are thought of as the source of, uh, of our emotions. And Satan loves to attack both of those. Satan loves to attack your emotions and Satan loves to attack your thought life, where you, where you feel and where you think. So when, when it says, put on the breastplate of righteousness, what, what Paul is saying, you've got you've to recognize, you've got to live in the truth that Christ's righteousness is a covering for you. You've got to know that. You've got you to think that. You've got to believe it. You've got to trust in that. But it also means, I think, that you and I need to seek and pursue a righteous lifestyle. We need to, Christ's righteousness is the only thing that ultimately covers us. But we need to be in agreement with that in, in the way in which we live. So, so please hear this. Our lifestyles will either fortify us against the attack of the enemy. Or it will make it easier for him to attack us. The choices we make in our life set us up to be, fall under a greater attack or to defend ourselves more effectively. L listen to this. This is a pretty long passage of scripture I want to read to you. But it's from 1 John and it, it speaks to this. In verse 7, John writing says, Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous um, as he is righteous. Speaking of Jesus. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. And that means a lifestyle. This is just your continual habitual lifestyle. Whoever Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy that work. The works, the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. Nor is the one who does not love his brother. And you jump down to verse 18. John continues writing. He says, this. Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. By this, we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart. We're reassuring our own heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. Beloved, if your heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. Here's, here's what I want you to see out of this. One of the great battles that I, I walk with many believers through and it breaks my heart is they, their, their own heart condemns them. Because they've given themselves over to, to something, whether it's an addictive behavior, whether it's a pattern of compulsion and sin, whatever it is. Maybe it, maybe it has, you know, debt gone awry in your life. All of these different things. And what they've done is they've eroded their heart's confidence in God. And the word of God. This is where our lifestyle impacts us. It robs us of peace. It robs us of being confident in our own faith in God. And that's the point that, that Paul is trying to make about. And John's writing about this, this, this practice of righteousness. Is it erodes our confidence if we're not pursuing righteousness as a lifestyle. 
It's there to protect you so that your feelings aren't taken away and, 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 and destroy you and your, your thoughts aren't. Next piece, look at this in, in verse 15. And as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In that day, soldiers did not have these, you know, boots that laced up to their knees kind of thing. They basically wore sandals. Many of them open-toed sandals. Some had closed-toed sandals. But most of them, uh, almost all of them, had little tacks driven through so that they could grip even on rock. Um, and so when the, Paul's looking at that and he's seeing how they use their shoes to stand firm and plant themselves, what Paul is saying that you and I must do is we must have a grip, a grasp with, uh, uh, on the gospel. We, we've got to have this, this, this grip. We've got to know that we've got to stand firm that we have been saved by grace through faith. Not a works. It's all about what Jesus has done. And, and we've got to be willing to share that. To have our testimony. The, those, those, those gospel shoes that take us into to telling others. That, that's part of the battle. Is we share with others the, the truth of the gospel. Then in Revelation 12, 11, I want you to see this. It tells us that they, they overcame. We sang about this a moment ago. It's right out of scripture. It says that they, they overcame by the blood of the lamb and what? The word of their testimony. Their testimony was of what Jesus had done for them. What Jesus had done for them. Next, jump to verse 16 of Ephesians 6. It says, in addition to all of this, taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. I'm not recommending it, but I did see the, uh, the movie Gladiator. And we're told, historians uh, that studied the, the era told, uh, said that um, that movie, the opening scene was very real to life as to what a battle looked like. And in that, that battleground, you, you actually saw different kinds of shields that uh, Roman soldiers carried. Some of them carried th this round disc shield. And they would carry a, a, just kind of a short 18 inch or so uh, double edged sword. And they, they were kind of like the, the fighting infantry. They were a little bit more mobile if you would. But the front lines, those on the front lines had a shield that was about two and a half foot by four and a half foot tall. And it, they had the capacity to lock together. One had a hook, one, one shield had a hook on, on an end and a, an opening on the other end, a loop. And they would literally hook their shields together and they would march those shields forward, jabbing their spears through a little slit. And they, I mean, that, that was one of their effective battle plans. And they would just push the enemy back, killing them, walking, marching over them along the way. Well, Paul is looking at these shields, and one of the things they would do with their shields, many of their shields, sometimes they were metal, but most of them were uh, a metal shield that had a leather wrapping over it, and the night before they went to battle, they would soak them in water. So that when the enemy shot their arrows, talked about fiery arrows, what the enemy would do is the enemy would take their arrows, they would put a little wrapping of cotton on the tip of the arrow, they would dip it in pitch and light it. So when it hit a shield, if it was just a metal shield, what it would do is it wouldn't penetrate anything, but it would splatter that pitch and burn them. Set their clothing on fire because of the, the, the spattering of, of the, the, the pitch that was on fire on that cloth. And so if they had a shield that had leather on it doused in water, it would literally absorb it and put it out. It would extinguish it. 
Now one of the realities that, that you and I face when it comes to Satan's fiery darts, one of the things that happens with us is we may have, you know, we, we may, may be kind of fortified. We, we may have, have a shield. But if our shield of faith has not been kind of doused in the Spirit of God, if we're not regularly experiencing the, 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 the washing of the war of the word, the spirit of God, our, our, our shield, when that arrow hits, it may splatter over us. And here's what happens. And you, you have probably experienced this at some time in your life. I, I know I have. When, when the fiery dart comes and, and hits a shield and it spatters in your thought life, you begin to get overwhelmed. And what, was, what felt like one kind of fiery dart, it just kind of explodes on you and then your thoughts go awry and you, you start thinking things like, am I even saved? I mean, it just, it debilitates. It just kind of rolls down and it, it, it just blows up on you. Have I fallen from grace? I know the Bible says it can't, but Satan comes at you that way. And so Paul says you have to take up the proper shield of faith. And one of the things that imagery of the particular shield that he's talking about, that interlocking, you need the body of Christ. You, you need to be in, able to interlock your shield of faith with other shields of faith and move forward as this solid unit. You know, shield, shield, uh, faith on faith. Interestingly, the word that's used for faith um, in this passage in Ephesians when he's talking about the shield of faith is not saving faith, it's past tense. It's a future faith. It's this future kind of renewable faith. And what he's talking about is that you have faith in the promises of God. So that while you're still in the battle, you have this, this trusting faith. Here's how trusting faith shows up. You're in the middle of the battle. You, you, you feel like you're kind of getting creamed. And here's what you do. You start, you start declaring out loud. Here's why I tell you to do it out loud. It's because Satan can't read your mind. You just start declaring out loud the truths of Scripture. God is for me. Who can be against me? The Bible says that God is with me. He'll never leave me. The Bible says that God is with me to deliver me. You just speak those things out loud. The, the truths of God's word. You make, you make these declarations of who you are, in, that you are in Christ. And it will begin to extinguish those, those fiery darts. You pray with other believers. You get with other believers and you confess sin to them. And you say, pray for me. I'm, I'm struggling with this temptation. And you watch the grace of God just pour out over you from a brother or sister who, who love you. You get, you get in a small group where you know one another and, and, and they help you support. And, and you support them when these assaults come. That's what the shield of faith looks like when it's operating at its full measure. In verse 17 it says, take the helmet of salvation. Now the helmet, uh, again, you, you and I realize this, it's, it's important, it protects the mind. But here's what I, I hope you pick up on. The, the, the helmet is the second piece of equipment to guard your thought life. The breastplate of righteousness, the, you know, as your heart thinks, but then as your mind thinks. And, and, and the reason for that, I believe, why Paul went after that twice, that imagery twice, is because this is where Satan just comes at us, is, is in our thinking, in our thought life. One of the things that breaks my heart sometimes is there are segments of the Christian faith that mock, literally mock, those who study the scriptures intently. They'll talk about those ivory tower elites. Oh, that's destructive. That's harmful. 
You know, one of the things I love about God's word, Peter writes this to the church. He says, but grow in the grace. That's in feeling, experiencing the, the Lord. But then he says, and the knowledge of the Lord. He, want, he wants you to have this knowing. In the Old Testament, the prophet Hosea was given a word from God to give to his people. And this is what God said. My people are destroyed from a lack of feelings. Is that what he said? No. My people are destroyed from a lack of knowing. From a lack of, uh, of knowledge. And see, the enemy assaults knowing him. Knowing the truth about him and his word. Last half of verse 17 says this. Take up the, the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Which is, is, is God's word. Hebrews 4 tells us about the word of God. It says the word of God is living. It's active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces to the vision of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, to discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Joe's translation. It cuts through all the garbage. It just cuts through all the garbage. It cuts through all human facade. It cuts through all sin. It just gets right to the heart of the matter. Some of you will remember in Acts 2, Peter stands up and, and preaches. And that day the church is born. 3,000 people get saved. And in verse 37, uh, it says that the people were cut to their heart. And they, they said to Peter and the arrested apostles, what shall we do? And Peter said this, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ. If you go back and you look at that sermon that Peter preached and look at the way that he was applying the word of God because he knew it would cut to the human it would cut through everything that's why we, we depend on the word of God around here and why you need to depend on the word of God out there you need to take that sword now one of the primary reasons I believe I see so many Christians falling into temptation is they don't know how to use this as a sword as a, a, a weapon of defense and a weapon of offense against the uh, attacks of Satan because he's going to come and you need to learn how to counter attack I'm not going to read it all right now but it's going to come up on the screen Matthew chapter 4 when Jesus was doing battle with temptation with the enemy the enemy would come at Jesus and he'd actually quote scripture and what did Jesus do Jesus took a very specific passage of scripture that counterattacked exactly what Satan did now you and I need to learn to do that now you may not have a memory for the scriptures like Jesus did yet but you know what you got today okay Google <laughs> find Bible verses about temptations in lust it's, it's going to do it I got to turn Google off um, uh, or Siri I'm an Android dude okay I don't like a propriety ship never mind another message the, um, you have access today to rapidly in the middle of the battle even if you can't recall it in your mind you can use God's word that is incredibly accessible if you have not uh, downloaded a Bible app please do it. Use this. This gets used for lots of perverted reasons in our world. 
But you can use it for kingdom reasons. It will help you. Some of you are saying, well, I'm not, a, I'm not an electronic person. Get you a good study Bible that has a good topical index so that you can, when something is coming at you about finances or relationships, you can turn to God's word quickly and find out what does God's word say here. And you can do the same thing Jesus did. You can offensively go after Satan with the word of God. Now, I want to kind of bring things to a, a close here. When it comes to spiritual warfare, I, I want to I say something. In, in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 18, we're going to come back to this next week and pick up more about prayer. But it says this, pray in the Spirit at all times on every occasion. Stay alert. Be persistent in your prayers for all believers everywhere. Now, as I see it, when the enemy comes and attacks me, I'm told by Paul, the only one that I need to talk to is to God. I don't need to talk to the devil. I, I don't need to go talk to him. And see, you'll, you'll see, uh, one of the things you see on, sometimes on TV is people talking about, you know, you got to go and you got you to gotta name that demon. You got to cast him out. You got to talk to him. I, I, I'm telling you, you, you don't, don't want to get in a power struggle with, Satan is not afraid of you. Now, he's afraid of Christ in you. But he is not afraid of you. The book of Jude, uh, James tells us that what we do is we resist the devil. We just stand in opposition to it. We do not give an inch. Okay? We, we, we resist him with the, the word of God and he, he'll, he'll flee to us. That verse actually starts by submit to God, resist the devil, he will flee from you. You don't, even, you don't need to talk to Satan. In Jude chapter 1 verse 9, the archangel... The, the, the primary dude in God's army of angels, okay? Michael, the archangel, when he's battling Satan, he does not rebuke Satan. What he says is, the Lord rebuke you. Now, if the archangel is not getting into a verbal word war with Satan, why do I think I need to? Paul didn't tell me that sometimes I, I, I hear people talking about doing spiritual warfare and it sounds like they're praying to Satan. They're having this conversation. You don't need to talk to him. You just simply talk to the Lord. You march forward on, on your knees. And you do it with this. This is the last thing you need to know. You need, you know if you're going to be strong in the Lord, you've got to know that your victory is certain. Your, your victory is certain. Now, here's what I think. I think most of us would like to go into battles where we know victory is certain. We don't, if, if it's iffy, maybe not so much. But if our victory is certain. These are those last two passages of scripture I told you weren't in your notes. You may want to write them down. Romans chapter 8 verse 37. In everything we have won more than a victory because of Christ who loves us. In 1 John chapter 2 it says this. John gives this list of things. Reasons why he's writing to them. And one of the reasons he said I'm writing to you is because you have won your battle with the evil one. You have overcome by the blood of the Lamb and where you have overcome. And today, God wants you to know that you can stand, you can stand, you can be strong in the Lord. You can be strong in the Lord and in His might. You don't have to keep taking a beating in your relationships, in your thought life, in, in your fight. You don't have to do that. You can be strong in the Lord. Let's pray together. 
Father, we, we come giving thanks for your word. The power of your word for our lives. We give thanks, God, for what you're doing. And we thank you, Jesus, for what you have done and continue to do for us, interceding for us in the presence of the Father right now. We thank you for that. We thank you for equipping us with your word, with, with weapons that allow us to stand firm against the, the attacks of the enemy. And so, Father, I pray right now for my brothers and sisters in this room. Some are here today and their bodies, their bodies have been attacked by disease. And there's all kinds of emotions tied with that and all kinds of thoughts of fear tied to that. And so, not only are their bodies attacked, but their minds and their, their hearts are attacked. Father, I pray that you would provide for them this great defense in Christ. That they would put on that breastplate of righteousness in him, knowing that it's his righteousness that fortifies them. That you would remind them that you were there with them in this battle. Father, there are some here today and they're, they're battling they're battling in their finances and they need deliverance, God. They need to, to, to tie the belt of truth around them right now, girding themselves up for that battle. Knowing, God, that you're with them, that your word gives them a path forward. Father, there are others here who are struggling in broken relationships and they need the truth of your word, God, to, to show them how to be strong. And Father, there may be some here today who they've yet to have that experience where they've trusted Jesus. And maybe today it's the day. Maybe today they realize there, there has been a battle. They didn't know what it was. They felt it, but they didn't know that it was a fight for their very souls, their minds. And so God, I just pray right now that they would know that they can just trust you through your son Jesus. They can trust that what he did on the cross, that his righteousness will prevail for them too. If they will just do what the word says. Believe in their hearts. Repent. Believe in their hearts that God has raised them from the dead. They'll be saved. You can do that right where you're at. And so God, we come once again at this point in our service to surrender ourselves to you. Knowing that in you is the only way we'll overcome. So we come bringing ourselves, bringing your tithes and offerings. We come, God, wanting to overcome in you, in you alone, in this life. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you're in North Charleston this Sunday, please consider visiting us at our 9 o'clock or 1130 services. We'd love to see you. Again, for more information, visit riverbluff.org. Now go change the world.